It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension. There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero. Global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Beyond Zero show. Recorded in the studios of 3CR Melbourne, syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast on the internet at bze.org.au and 3cr.org.au and whatever podcasting app you choose to use. And don't forget, you can also follow us on Twitter at BZE Tech Show. My name is Kay Winningall and I'm joined by my co-hosts Laura Perry and Michael Steindall. Morning, Kay. Good morning, Kay. Hi, guys. All healthy and happy today? Yeah, happy to get out of bed on the cold morning. <laughs> if you'll excuse my cough, I'll try to keep it ahead of the mic. <laughs> today we'll be talking to the Clean Energy Campaigner at the Australian Conservation Foundation and long-time environmentalist Hannah Alby. Hannah grew up in an environmentally active family and was part of forest rallies from a young age. A full year as an exchange student in Brazil at the age of 15 galvanised her interest in politics. Part of a small group that formed the Young Greens in Tasmania in 2006, Hannah was also a delegate at the Global Young Greens Conference in Nairobi, Kenya at the end of that year. While she was travelling in South America in 2008, she was also part of the organising group for the Global Greens Conference in Sao Paulo in Brazil. Whilst embarking on her economics and arts degree in the University of Tasmania, she continued her pay work for the Wilderness Society. As well as being involved with Environment Tasmania, Hannah was also a driving force in establishing climate action Hobart. And in early 2010 was the assistant campaign manager for the Tasmanian Greens' successful state election campaign. Hannah started as director of fundraising and engagement for Beyond Zero Emissions in 2011 prior to joining Lock the Gate, where she worked for two years. And she started with ACF just six months ago. Good morning, Hannah. Thanks for joining us. Hi, thanks. We've already covered a bit about your environmentally aware youth. Tell us a bit more about your family's involvement in environmental activities when you were growing up. Yeah, so I guess it's, they weren't necessarily super active, but they were always aware of what was going on. Um, obviously, growing up in Tassie, I had a strong um, appreciation of the natural world, and I grew up um, on on the foothills of Mount Wellington and had, you know... Um, out on my back doorstep was Myrtle Gully and these rain, beautiful rainforest tracks. Mm, um, so as a young kid, I spent a lot of time up there in the in the ferns and moss and trees. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, I guess my family were always interested in environmental or social issues and, and took me along to different events and forums and rallies and... Um, and yeah, as you mentioned, I think spending that year away made me kind of a bit more aware of global issues and, and spurred my interest in climate change. Yeah, so you noticed that it wasn't just a local issue, it was an international issue. Yeah, exactly. So in Tassie, you know, there's a lot of interest in the local forest, but when I went overseas for that year, I realised that there's people all around the world that are living in very, you know, unequal societies and that this is going to be increasingly, you know, worsened by climate change. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. 
And let's discuss, uh, we've mentioned your involvement with the Greens. Let's discuss that a little bit f- further. We had Margaret Blakers on earlier this year, probably a couple of months ago. She was great. She obviously, she founded the Greens as far as I understand. Is that right? She founded the Global Greens. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, she was involved for a very long, from the early days with Bob Brown. She was one of Bob Brown's earliest advisors um, and actually one of my early mentors. So, <laughs> um, yeah, I really enjoy Margaret. Mm. Yeah, she's she's got incredible energy, hasn't yeah, she? Yeah, she's great. Yeah, yeah. She's awesome. Yep. And the Greens movement, I mean, you know, there are so many well-known people. Christine Milne, I think, is another one that was Yeah, Tassie, Tassie's done pretty well. Produced them all and send them to the mainland. <laughs> Christine Milne and Margaret Blake has spent a lot of time in Tassie as well. Um, and then the latest senators, Nick McKim and Peter Wish-Wilson. Oh, okay. Um, I worked for Nick McKim. So, I, yeah, I started out with the Young Greens when I came back from my exchange and... Um, then worked for the state election that year and, and following that worked in the minister's office when Nick McKim and Cassie O'Connor were put into the balance of power in the cabinet um, and that was interesting. I worked part-time there helping with media and comms and stuff as a mm. while I was at uni. Mm. Mm. Great learning curve. Yeah, it was awesome and, and really interesting to see the power of the Greens in cabinet and the different ways of, of, of managing minority government. Um, yeah, it was a really interesting process. You know what's impressive about a, a lot of the Greens members and candidates <coughs> is that they all come from a working environment, so they're, they're not actually... They don't grow up in politics and um, that isn't a vocation of theirs. They're actually out there working as climate scientists or whatever and then they get involved with the Greens. Yeah, there's a big range of people that are involved in the Greens. I'm not really involved as much anymore. i am just got interested in other things, but... Yeah, definitely. When I was there, I met lots of people who come from a big range of backgrounds and, mm. um, yeah, really good people. It's mm. very impressive. But let's get on to your main focus, stopping coal and shifting to renewables. So in your article in the New- Newcastle Herald last October, you discussed Origin closing down the largest coal power station in Australia and how Australia is left behind in the international community with China and India quitting coal and investing in renewables. China was spent um, $83 billion in 2014 and increased that to $117 billion last year on renewables. Yeah, and that, those figures have actually increased. There was an article um, just a couple of weeks ago saying, or even earlier this week, I think, saying that international investment this, this in the last year had gone up to $287 billion. Mm. Um, and what's sad about that is that Australia is not getting hardly any of that investment because of the uncertain policy environment that, mm. we're, that we're living in um, and also because we've got excess um, supply in the system of coal. So coal is blocking up the system. There's no certainty in, in policy. And so there's this boom in renewables going on internationally with $286 billion being spent and Australia's not getting any of Just that. sitting on our hands about it all. <laughs> and BZE's... Um, Renewable Energy Superpower Report was really a great um, addition to that kind of debate because it talked about not only is there investment available directly in renewable energy, but there's also lots of investment that we could be taking advantage of in energy-intensive industries that are more likely to 
come and set up shop in a country that's got cheap, reliable, renewable mm. energy and is setting itself up with that policy certainty that I talked about for the long term. Mm. And the BZE superpower report said that, that the value of that part, the energy-intensive industries, is about $13 trillion. So it's it, it outweighs the investment that's available for direct investment in renewables, um, but they need to go together. Mm. Mm, absolutely. Hannah, the international price for coal has crashed um, in recent years from about $130 a metric tonne in 2011 to um, just over $50, around $53 a metric tonne this year. And the forecasts are the price won't increase over the next five years. This is going to mean potentially a lot of stranded assets, um, which means investments, anyone with investments in coal, whether it's directly or by super, um, should immediately get out. Um, would you like to talk a bit more about that and the implications yeah, I for think, the investment move? Yeah, I think we've seen some of that playing out already with, you know, a range of big multinational companies, you know, Peabody, Anglo-American, um, Glencore just closed a mine recently, just the other day. Um, big international companies um, that are starting to get out of coal and sell off their assets in Australia. Um, obviously, yeah, Peabody's bankruptcy is one example, but mm. but there's you know there's five five or ten different international companies that are trying to get out of coal, and are doing so because of those economic reasons. Um, a lot of people, yeah, as you said, that it's not looking good for the coal price long term. Um, but I think the implications of that for policy um, is that we need to prepare, have better preparation for these things happening because, mm. um, you know, when people close, when multinational companies close mines, often because they've run out of money, they want to get out as quickly as possible. Mm. And if we don't have the right mine rehabilitation uh, policies in place and regulations, then they can basically pack up and leave the mine exactly how they left it. And there's plenty of examples all around Australia where um, companies have left a total mess behind and run off with all the profits and and left the community to deal with the mess. And and the mess looks like... um, toxic waste mm, basically yeah. there's you know contaminated water continued pollution from these mines um and just um massive holes mm. and in a, a the lot ground of those rehabilitation that, funds are woefully inadequate aren't they yeah so regulations woefully inadequate in australia at the moment and that's why this point is really important because the coal boom's over the price you know continues to drop companies are continuing to get out of coal as quick as they can. There's no money left in it for them in a lot of ways. And so the urgency of improving our mine rehabilitation regulations is increasing. Mm. Um, We saw in Victoria recently some progress in this, which is really great. Um, The Andrews government responded um, to the Hazelwood Mine Fire Inquiry, um, uh, which recommended increasing the rehab bonds for for the Victorian mines. Um, and he did that and also he increased the bonds and also required that the the companies pay 100% of their um, of their rehab money straight up mm. um, so that it's not not exposed away. yeah there's no there's less risk yep. so all their liabilities they've got to foot that up 100% i think by 2017 or something mm. like that which is you know the kind of the kind of policies that you know could be strengthened to be able to deal with the the crash in the coal price. 
Absolutely. Before we unpack um, these policies and the social implications a little bit further, um, would you just comment on what was in the news this week, which was um, that Australia's economy grew 1.1% um, in the last quarter, and that was the fastest quarter, largely due to mining exports? Yeah, I think looking at the article, it says um, that it was exports overall, and my comment on that, I think, would be that during the mining boom, um, the Australian dollar was pushed up through the roof because we had large amounts of exports um, and and they were going at a certain value and it was pushing up the, the value of the dollar. So other export industries, manufacturing, tourism, education, all suffered from that because their products became more expensive mm. to overseas buyers because the value of the dollar was so high. So I think... I think what's happened is that we've seen the dollar come back to a more normal level and some of those other export industries have started to recover. Um, although mining production is still at a high level and needs to be timed back, I think the other export industries actually contribute a lot more to that than we think and, and that they're starting to recover from, from the mining boom basically, which has had negative impacts on other industries, squeezing mm. out squeezing mm. out other export industries in some mm. ways. So. And the boom of building new coal mines is over. Yeah, the boom of building new coal mines is over. There's still, you know, a lot of production going on. Like a lot of the coal mines that were built during the boom are now just trying to get out, get as much coal out of the ground as quickly as possible before the coal price keeps dropping. We've got excess supply of coal. So in India, um, there's news reports saying that they're stockpiling um, you know, millions and millions and millions of tonnes of massive stockpiles of coal because the price is too low and they don't want to, you know, they don't want to sell it. So there's too much coal in the system. And, um, and yeah, as I said, the, the positive thing is that some of the other export industries are recovering and, and filling in some of that gap, which is great. Mm. Um, I just wanted to zoom in on Port Augusta um, for a minute. So last month we saw the closure. Uh, of this coal-fired power station in South Australia, which was a central employer and energy supplier for communities for 50 years. Um, and I understand that local groups have been working hard to ensure that there would be a smooth transition um, in Port Augusta, but with no direct policy on this, uh, what's what's the state of the, the people who have recently lost their jobs? Yeah, so I was involved with the Repower Port Augusta campaign five years ago with at BZE. And way back then you, you we were saying, that, as I recall. yeah, with Mark um, and and Dan at at, at AYCC. Mm. Um, back way back then we were saying we were going over there and saying, look, guys, your coal plants are going to close soon, mm. and you need a plan to figure out what's next. And here's an idea for base load renewables that could replace those plants and employ you know hundreds of workers and replace the the energy output. Um, obviously without their health and climate impacts. So we were saying it to them back then, but the response that we had then was that, oh, no, the coal plants will keep going. You know, we've got heaps of time. Um, and um, what we've seen now is that those timelines can get shorter and shorter and, and coal plants can close unexpectedly soon. Um, this case was that Alinta... Before Alinta made any announcements, everyone thought that the plants would be open for another 30 years, mm. which is a similar situation in the Latrobe Valley. Everyone says, okay, yeah, we've got about 30 years, we'll start planning, but we've got mm. a bit of time to get other industries up. But 
but because of um, excess supply in the grid and also because of the increasing role of renewables in South Australia, the economics of those coal plants just became worse and worse, basically, and Alinta was forced to close them. Obviously, because it's their profits on the line, they want, they have to make decisions quickly and turn around the outcomes. So the the community was given less than a year's notice, which is really pretty devastating. Mm. And, and the other part of it is that there was a lot of uncertainty. So the community found out first about the announcement in through a media statement um, and and that initial statement said, oh, yeah, maybe we'll close in 2018. We're giving you guys like three years' notice. Um, and then since then it's changed a number of times and the latest one being um, last month. So that's less than a year's notice. So I think it's, you know, it's a pretty strong lesson for communities in in t- places where there's coal-fired power stations because I think it's important really important to start planning the transition right now and to be ready and proactively doing that before it gets to the point where you're leaving the 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 future of your community up to the decisions of a company whose interest doesn't lie you know their number one interest does not lie in the community it does not lie in the local environmental um, situation that their interests lie in their profits and their you know and with their shareholders so local governments, state governments, the federal government, I think, and also community groups need to take up take up the leadership on this one and start planning now so that, yeah, communities aren't left out to dry. Yeah. And so, the reason they have to do that is because the government isn't taking any action. So it's down to the community groups to look after themselves. And I think I heard yesterday that the Labor Party was actually going to commit to a solar thermal plant for Port Augusta. Yeah, so five years on, we're getting more and more Final. progress, um, which is really exciting. And and unfortunately, as you said, there's been no policy announcement or no money, you know, invested in the community. So a lot of, you know, some families would have left already, and the, you know, the cost of the of the coal plants closing and the lack of transition planning is real and is being felt right now but the good news is that the solar thermal proposal is getting closer and closer to fruition and you know we're just hoping that you know we've had a lot of talk about it and um, we just really need some money on the table and a direct direct announcement because there's been lots of talk and promises but we haven't seen anything for the community so we'd, we'd really hope that before the election that something actually happens there. So following on from your comments, Hannah, on Port Augusta, you mentioned Hazelwood in passing, and that's the obvious analogy and and far bigger analogy. Um, They are on a similar trajectory. Uh, What's the conversation being had at a local level in Hazelwood um, around the likely enclosure? And, for example, are senior workers willing to talk about a transition and what it would look like? Yeah, so it is... uh in some ways, it, it is a similar situation here in that just last week we saw the French owners of Hazelwood, Engie Energy, um, say that they're considering closing it. Um, obviously, they're the, the parent company on the other side of the world um, and they're not going to be taking care of the community locally. So that community does need to start planning because company executives on the other side of the world are starting to 
think about making these decisions. Um, there are conversations going on locally. I'm, I'm going down to the La Trobe Valley next week to run a workshop with some community members about how we make sure that the transition planning involves a community. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we've seen some p- bits of progress. The Victorian government's committed $40 million to start strengthening the local economy in the La Trobe Valley and diversifying that economy. Obviously, that's not doesn't go very far, um, and and also the important thing is that it's led by the community and that you know government money is on the table, but that it's spent in a way that's agreed by everyone and and that local industries are you know starting to be set up and diversified early on in the game. So, because mm. yeah. unlike Port Augusta, a, a CST station isn't even so relevant for you, Lorne, is it? Um, no. Although so people have talked about the possibility of a pumped hydro storage using the, um, the height differential in the mine there. Yeah, I like. I quite like that idea. I mean, I haven't done any figures on it or anything, mm. but um, obviously there isn't going to be one solution. It's not, and I think that's the important thing in transition planning is it's not a simple replacement industry, mm. Um but that it is economic diversification and, and that can look like a whole myriad of things. It can look like, you know, um, whatever you want it to look like, basically. So we're encouraging communities to really imagine and dream what they want the future of their community to be and, and to make that happen. Um, and, there, you know, there are some renewable energy opportunities in the Latrobe Valley. Obviously, they're not large-scale as as much of, as in Port Augusta, but um, there's a local renewable energy businessman that I met last week, and he said um, that over the last few years, solar solar panels have increased to cover about a quarter of the roofs in the valley, mm. um, and that this week they're um, they're installing their first Tesla charging station, which they're all very excited oh, about. So very exciting. there is some local, there is some local, you know, impetus in building renewables and creating a renewable energy innovation hub there. So great. You're listening to the Beyond Zero Emissions Show, and we're with Hannah Orby from ACF. We're discussing the issues that political parties are having with dealing with climate change and transitioning from coal. And in one of your recent articles, uh, there was a study by Reachtel that found that most voters would be likely to vote for a party that has a plan to phase out coal-fired power stations and that 84% of Australians, or over 84% of Australians, think the next federal government must do more to address global warming. Is that is the government hoping that the market's going to sort this out or how's that going to work? Yeah, so obviously there's massive support um, around Australia for stronger action on climate change and and a recognition that this has to include closure of coal-fired power stations. Um, the Coalition's climate policy um, does not mention coal-fired power stations, um, which is a bit of a joke, seeing as that they... T- collectively in Australia, coal-fired power stations contribute half of our emissions as a country. They're by far the largest contributor to our pollution. And that was must have been a bit of a waste of money going to Paris then. <laughs> <laughs> well, they made a lot of song and dance about it. And, you know, and there were good, strong commitments coming out of Paris internationally. Um, but what we've seen is that that hasn't um, come across to real action in Australia and that our emissions in Australia have actually continued to rise, which is frankly irresponsible at a government level Mm. um in terms of the election um you know we the majority of voters do want to see more action on climate change and action on coal um 
and we're involved in that at a local level in a range of seats um, across Australia. In Melbourne, we're working in Deakin and Kooyong, um, and there's actually a forum coming up in a couple of weeks that I'll let listeners know about, um, which is on the 16th of June on Thursday at the Box Hill Town Hall, and it's about climate change, coal, and the impacts of this on the coral reef. We see massive bleaching on the reef, which is completely heartbreaking. Um, so it's a candidates forum, Box Hill Town Hall, Thursday 16th of June at 6.30 for a 7 o'clock start. Um, Josh Frydenberg will be there, the Minister for Energy and Resources, Janet Rice and Mark Butler, the Labor Shadow Minister for Climate Change. So some really great speakers and a really good opportunity to you know raise these issues that we've talked about today with our political leaders. Mm, that's, um, that's only a week and a bit away um, and it's going to be Victoria's largest climate election forum, in fact probably Victoria's largest election forum um, and if you care about these issues at all, do get along to that. We want to fill the hall with 500 people and, and let them know that it matters to us. Mm. Um, and, of course, the indefatigable um, climate campaigner Rod Quantock is hosting it. Now, we've just got two minutes left, um, so before we wind up, Hannah, um, what, what do you think the likelihood of a hung parliament is and what would that say for climate policy? How, what, do you, what are your feelings in lead-up to the election? Um, it's a tricky one to call. I think it's going to be really close either way. Um, I think that there is a possibility of a hung parliament or or that one side will win but on a really slim slim majority. So I think it's anyone's guess at the moment. Mm. And to push our parties to have, both parties to have a clear policy. Yeah, so we need to make sure that no matter who wins the election that there's strong community support for action on climate change so that it stops becoming a political football and starts becoming a, a serious you know, area of policy where we can start transitioning the economy, closing coal and, and protecting the Great Barrier Reef. Mm. All right, that is all we have time for. Thank you so much for chatting with us today, Hannah. No worries, thanks. Um, thanks, Bef Hannah. That was fantastic yeah, information. Before we finish up, I will just let everyone know that Radiothon uh, is coming up. It's from the 6th to the 19th of June. So we're selling, celebrating 40 years of community radio this year. Um, we need donations to come in now or soon. If you love the show or any other shows that you listen to, um, start sending your money our way. It would be fantastic um, if, you, if you can help because the government looks like they're going to cut funding for our community services. So let's all move it along a bit if we can. And on that forum that Hannah mentioned, um, we didn't give where to go. It's uh, Lighter Footprints and ECAM uh, hosting it. So either of their websites or go to Eventbrite and look for CC Election Forum. Eventbrite.com.au. You're listening to the Beyond Zero radio show, syndicated around the community, National Community Radio Network and broadcasted in Fitzroy, Melbourne. Thank you. It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension. There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Contagion. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero. Global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. It's 40 years that the station's been around. I hope it's around for the next 40 years. CR has been a trailblazer. It's still 
the leader and the benchmark in terms of actually engaging the community. Keep the trail blazing. Support 3CR in our 40th birthday radiothon. From June 6 to 19. To donate, call 9419 8377 or go to 3cr.org.au. The role it plays is really, really, really important. And the role it plays in empowering people on a personal level, empowering communities and giving communities the power to actually take a bit of control of their future cannot be underestimated.